It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, suicide, racism, and racist violence. Sheriff Christian Kratz could see a massacre looming. All he had to do was glance out the windows of the county jailhouse in Evansville, Indiana. He could watch the mob of white men clamoring for revenge. Their screams echoed through the hot summer air. Out there, too, were Evansville Mayor Charles Covert and Police Chief Fred Hukey. They were on the streets, trying their best to maintain order. But nothing was working. Sheriff Kratz knew that they didn't have much time left. He was a middle-aged man with a face dominated by a large walrus mustache and slightly mismatched eyes. As the county sheriff, 
He was responsible for the county jail that was now the center of this firestorm. Several days earlier, on July 3, 1903, an African-American man named Lee Brown had shot an Evansville policeman. Officer Lewis Massey held on to life for a few days. But now, Massey was dead, leaving behind a widow and a child. And the city's white citizens were using that crime as a pretext to try to attack and lynch Brown, along with any other black Evansville residents they could find. For now, the mob was threatening to storm the Vanderburg County Jail. The stone building, with its tower and turrets and archways, had been designed to look like a formidable medieval castle, but the crowd outside was undeterred. They demanded that Sheriff Kratz, Mayor Covert, and Chief Hukey hand over Brown, and the 16 or so other African-American inmates held within the jail for unrelated crimes. The city leaders weren't going to do that, though. Winfield Taylor Durbin, then the governor of Indiana, had run on a reform platform, introducing laws allowing the governor to boot sheriffs who didn't call upon the state militia for help in protecting prisoners from a lynch mob. So as long as Brown was in danger, Kratz's job was on the line. So the sheriff came up with a plan, likely plotted alongside Mayor Covert and Chief Yuki. Across the road from the jail sat the Vanderburg County Courthouse, a beautiful German Beaux-Arts structure boasting a bell tower and decorative sculptures. That had been built in 1890, while the jail and the sheriff's residence was built the following year. What many of the rioters may not have realized, and what the city leaders certainly knew, was that the jail and the courthouse shared a secret. They were connected by an underground tunnel. So the sheriff's men hustled Brown, who had been badly injured in the shootout, out of his cell, down through the dim tunnel. They made it out into the courthouse. Then somehow, they got Brown from the courthouse to a railroad station about six blocks away. They climbed on a train and headed north to the city of Vincennes. When the crowd of rioters broke into the jail using a telephone pole as a battering ram, they found that Brown was gone. The wounded prisoner was safe from the lynch mob for the time being. But in the coming days of blood and chaos, many others would lose their lives. White rioters would attack African Americans and destroy their property. The state militia was called in, resulting in a spate of deaths. By the end of the race riot, the city resembled a war zone. About a dozen people were dead, and a portion of the city's black population had fled their homes forever. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the murder sheet, and this is In the Hands of a Mob, the Evansville Race Riot. 
I grew up in Indiana, there's a lot they don't tell you about the Hoosier State in school textbooks. There's a tendency to downplay our state's grim history of racist violence against African Americans, along with the trend of widespread vigilantism. After the American Civil War, white capping became a common occurrence in Indiana. White capping refers to the participation in groups dedicated to so-called vigilante justice, namely lynchings. In one famous 1868 incident, members of the Reno gang were lynched by the self-styled Jackson County Committee of Vigilance. White capping didn't always involve racial violence. The members of the Reno gang were white, after all, and they were targeted for running a violent and highly organized crime syndicate out of Seymour, Indiana. But in many other cases, this brand of vigilantism specifically targeted African Americans for racial violence. In 1865, according to a fact sheet from the Evansville Police Department, a white mob lynched two African American men from a street lamppost, just outside the Evansville courthouse. In October of 1878, Indiana's Posey County, situated in the southwesternmost corner of the state, saw the mass lynching of seven black men who were accused of robbing a white-run brothel. In 1901, a white mob lynched a black man named George Ward, who stood accused of the murder of a white woman named Idle Finkelstein. A crowd of 1,000 onlookers watched the brutal slaying. In Indianapolis, white teenagers instigated the Garfield Park riot of 1919 after declaring that they were being followed by African Americans. They launched into an attack, beating black passers-by with bricks and clubs. The Ku Klux Klan became a powerful force in statewide politics in the 1920s. That only unraveled after KKK leader D.C. Stevenson abducted, raped, and tortured Madge Oberholzer, a young white woman who was an Indiana state education official. While Stevenson held her prisoner, Oberholzer managed to swallow three mercuric chloride tablets to escape the ongoing rapes and attacks. She subsequently died after identifying her attacker. Stevenson was convicted of her murder, and the scandal weakened the KKK's grip on the state. Still, more incidents followed. In 1930, a white mob brutally lynched two African-American men named Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith. A photograph of their bodies hanging from a tree went on to inspire the song Strange Fruit. And then there's what happened in Evansville in 1903. Evansville is the seat of Vanderburg County in the southwestern part of the state. Today, it's Indiana's third largest city, behind Indianapolis and Fort Wayne. And the riot still resonates there, even in 2022. Here's Kelly Coors, the executive director of Evansville's Department of Metropolitan Development. He wrote an article about the case for Evansville Living. Uh, so I've been a student of history, you know, like my whole life. And uh, especially when it comes to our city, uh, our city's history is, you know, we don't really teach it in schools. The, they touch on it in grammar school, but not to any great degree. 
so that's always been sort of a lament of mine is that, you know, we don't really spend a lot of time teaching kids about our town. But, you know, I always believe that you shouldn't be afraid of your history. You shouldn't be afraid of the past, that you should just deal with it and learn about it and move on. Periodically, I'll write articles, you know, when someone will ask me about it, I'll, I'll do something to, you know, kind of tell the story of this, you know, this is what happened. Well, I, you know, history, you can't change it, but you shouldn't be afraid of it. And if you don't know what happened, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. You know, it's like the difference between a, a, a clock with a face on it and a digital clock. A digital clock, all you can see is the time right now. Uh, a face clock, you can see the time before, the time to come. You can see the future, the past. If you don't, if you don't know what happened in your past, I don't know. I don't know how you ever move forward. We visited Evansville on a hot day in September last year. After we finished up some non-murder sheet-related business, we made a beeline for some of the sites associated with the riot. There wasn't anything really of note at the former site of Ossenberg's, just a few nondescript buildings. Evansville, Indiana. Ninth and Canal. That was over on what's now Mulberry and 10th, what was then 9th and Canal. I think Kelly even mentioned that it's a parking lot for school buses now, so we may not have even been wandering around the right series of lots and sidewalks and roads. All empty, as far as I recall, aside from an occasional pedestrian or car. I also seem to remember some sort of nearby booth set up for some sort of law enforcement hiring fair. We're going towards the... uh Old jail in Evansville, Indiana. Is that what this is? Yep. Next, we headed over to the jail and the courthouse. These are still magnificent, beautiful structures. The castle-like jail is now a lawyer's office, and they still maintain the structure as it was back in the day, at least from the outside. Both are imposing and impressive sites in Evansville's downtown. For us, whenever we cover a case like this, we try to visit the sites whenever we can, as they allow us to better picture past events, especially long-ago nightmares like this riot. One could argue that the Evansville race riot started with a squabble at a bar, Ossenberg's Tavern, located at 9th and Canal Streets to be exact. But that incident was just a catalyst. That was the lit match. The oil-soaked rag, so to speak, was a force much more insidious and long-standing. In his 1998 dissertation, An Undergrowth of Folly, Public Order, Race Anxiety, and the 1903 Evansville, Indiana Riot, Brian Butler wrote that Evansville's African-American population swelled after the Civil War. The number reached around 8,000 strong on the eve of the 1903 riot. The Indiana Historical Bureau's publication, The Indiana Historian, published a 1995 examination of Evansville's black community. It found that Evansville was largely populated with white Southern transplants and German immigrants, who largely reinforced segregation and prejudice against African Americans. But waterfront jobs along the Ohio River still lured in African Americans from Kentucky and Tennessee. An area called Baptist Town became a hub for the growing African American community there. 
For the most part, these people were limited to poorly paid jobs, day laborers and service employees. But still, a black middle class began to grow. Members of the community established churches and schools. Evansville even appointed its first black police officer, a man named Robert Nichols, in 1874. In 1883, an African-American officer named F. Doe Martin joined the three-person commission assigned to running the police department. The Indiana historian cited a June 1903 article from George Stewart, the editor of the Indianapolis Recorder, a great local African-American publication that still exists today. Stewart wrote with approval about Evansville's black community, with its five schools, newspaper, and five doctors. A month later, hundreds, if not thousands of members of that same community were forced to flee for their lives. You see, many white power brokers within the city had an issue with the presence of the black community. Both the local Republican and Democratic interests exploited stereotypes of African Americans as disordered, and in league with Evansville's underbelly of vice. This decision to stoke racial hatred for political gain ultimately resulted in the events of 1903. The catalyst was the incident at Ossenberg's Tavern. The day before the 4th of July in 1903, a man named Lee Brown, also called Robert Lee in some sources, got into a fight with another man named Tom Barry, an employee at the bar. Both men were African-American. Brown was very likely drunk. It was late in the afternoon, and Brown apparently grabbed a beer and tried to leave the establishment. Barry followed him to remind him to pay for his drink. In the heat of the ensuing argument, Brown declared that he'd kill Barry. In order to do so, he rushed out into the summer day. He retrieved a gun from his residence and began hurrying back to Barry to finish things. But he was intercepted on his return. You see, Lewis Nelson Massey had been made aware of Brown's threat and followed him. Massey was a policeman on the Evansville force. Contemporary reports describe him as a popular, well-seasoned cop. That afternoon, Massey decided to arrest Brown. On the Officer Down memorial page, a photo of Lewis Nelson Massey shows a man with a bald head and a thick, sandy mustache. In the picture, he wears the uniform of the time, a long policeman's tunic with two rows of brass buttons, a large star badge, and a helmet that resembles the custodian helmet traditionally worn by English police officers. According to a paper from the Evansville Police Department, Massey walked a solo day shift beat. He had worked at the department for 18 years. Here's Kelly. The next day in the morning, uh, Massey died, and the word got out that he was the first police officer to be killed in the line of duty in Evansville. Massey was uh, very popular. You know, everything was political in Evansville, and kind of still is. I think there were people who had been grooming him to be chief of police, at some point, I think he was fairly young. He might have been in his 30s. 
he was just really highly he was highly thought of. That's another thing that inflamed the the crowd is that he was a very popular cop in Evansville at the time. You know, the police force wasn't that big. It wasn't that huge. So one police officer could be known for good deeds and and uh, by a large number of people. There just weren't that many of them. I think it maybe had 50, 40, 50 officers in 1903, maybe that many. Be him being so popular and so highly thought of and, and all that, I think that probably had something to do. But, I, you know, there's been, there's been race trouble here forever when the black population here grew and I don't think the white population here was either ready for it or happy about it. You know, and the white Evansville struggled to contain and keep blacks segregated, ghettoized. Accounts differ somewhat as to what exactly happened in the clash between Massey and Brown. Some reported that Brown saw Massey following him and shot him then and there. Others reported that Massey hid in a doorway and tried to lay hands on Brown as he walked back to Ossenberg's. Either way, the end result is the same all around. Brown shot Massey, but Massey wasn't dead yet. The wounded policeman fired back, hitting Brown. Massey would not survive long. He'd been shot in the abdomen, and the bullet was stuck in his spine. He was rushed to Deaconess Hospital, where he died on July 4, 1903. Brown also ended up at Deaconess, and then was transferred to the county jail. The Fuhrer began to boil in Evansville right away. The Evansville Courier ran with the story, peppering it with an inflaming headline which very much tied Brown's actions with his race. A white mob descended on Baptist Town. Evansville's white civilians also began looting hardware stores, stealing guns and ammunition. They spread rumors that an attack from their black neighbors was imminent, even as they assaulted black citizens and destroyed black-owned properties. The rage culminated in the mob's attack on the jailhouse that we described at the top of our episode. The city leaders, Sheriff Kratz, Chief Hukey, and Mayor Covert, tried to announce that Brown was long gone. But the mob didn't care. They kept coming back. They still wanted to storm the jail. Here's Kelly. So in 4th Street, in between the courthouse and the jail, there were thousands of people uh, demanding the sheriff uh, bring this guy out. They were going to lynch him. It was a lynch mob. It got bigger and bigger as the day went on. The night came. It got bigger. And they had torches, and they were threatening to break in the jail. And so they pulled down a telephone pole and broke in the doors of the jail building and went in and took, I think there were five or six black prisoners in the jail at the time. They brought them all out, looked at all of them to you know, see if one of them had a bullet wound because they knew he'd been shot. Well, none of them did. So the mayor so the mayor came out. He told them, said, you know, we've taken this guy out of town. He's gone. Uh, so you need to go home. Well, the crowd didn't. They didn't disperse. They, In fact, the, the mob got bigger the next day and they were furious at not only the mayor and the sheriff, but they were furious that they weren't going to be able to lynch this guy. So over the next six days, the the mob took out after there was the Baptist town, the neighborhood at the the northeast corner at that time of the urban, the city. The the rioters went went after black people. They started just beating black people in the street. 
And, of course, you know, the conspiracy theories out there that we have today are nothing like they were in 1903. There were rumors that uh, black people from Chicago were on their way here uh, to battle the white population and that black people had broken in all the gun stores. And so the the white mob started breaking in the gun stores and taking, taking weapons out. But people fled. Black people fled. They set fires to their houses. And many black people left Evansville on however they could get away on foot. They, a lot of them jumped on a ferry because there was no bridge between Evansville and Henderson, Kentucky at that time. They would they jumped on the ferry. They, they would steal boats to get across the river to Henderson, uh, wherever they could find safety. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In its July 6, 1903 edition, the San Francisco Call newspaper published a special dispatch from Evansville. It begins with a chilling lead. The city is in the hands of a mob. The subhead echoes the declaration of the white rioters that they sought to exterminate Evansville's black population. As we mentioned up top, unlike many of his predecessors, Indiana Governor Durbin wanted to clamp down on lynching. So, authorities like Sheriff Kratz, 
Chief Hukey and Mayor Covert quickly called in the state militia for help. At 5.55 in the morning on July 6th, Captain Julius Bloom received an order from the governor dispatching his company to Evansville to quell the violence. Bloom and Company E, 1st Infantry, fully assembled about two hours later. Bloom recorded the day's events in a report to the Adjutant General of the state. Kevin will read from that report now. As rioting, housebreaking, robbing, and shooting had been going on for two days, the writer considered the situation dangerous in the extreme. So, in the presence of the judges of the circuit and superior courts, the sheriff, mayor, and chief of police of Evansville called up the adjutant general's office by telephone and recommended that additional troops be hurried to this city and was informed that two companies would probably be sent. At 2.30 in the afternoon on July 6th, Sheriff Kratz summoned the militia to the jail and courthouse. As Bloom put it, the scene soon became ugly. He later wrote that the National Guard were subjected to unheard-of taunts, jeers, curses, threats, and personal attack. Captain Bloom went to Chief Hukey for backup, but was told that the police had no more men to spare for arrests. Meanwhile, Sheriff Kratz had already sworn in a hundred new deputy sheriffs to deal with the crisis, but they had mostly been sent to protect Baptist Town. The rest were under siege in the courthouse. Things escalated further around 7 o'clock at night, when a guardsman scuffled with a rioter. The guardsman bayoneted his assailant, piercing his clothing and pinning him to the ground, although the man apparently wasn't seriously injured from that. But the mob was infuriated. Here's Kevin again, with that report from Captain Bloom. The guards were forced back, inch by inch, the distance of half a block, to the jail entrance. Around 10 o'clock, Bloom rushed into the sheriff's residence, which was attached to the jail. He came upon a standoff between Colonel George McCoy of the 1st Indiana Infantry and Sheriff Kratz. Colonel McCoy wanted Kratz's deputies to support the guardsmen to keep the crowd in line. The sheriff finally acquiesced, providing four deputies to bolster the National Guard's line. As Captain Bloom stepped out of the jail, alongside one Dr. W.H. Gilbert, the night erupted in gunfire. So what exactly happened? The July 7, 1903 edition of the Los Angeles Herald carried a report saying that the mob had spent hours screaming insults to the guardsmen, as well as pelting them with rocks. By the end of this, the guards literally had their backs up against a wall. At one point, the mob tried to push into the jail, using a bicycle to bowl over the guardsmen so that they could access the prisoners inside. This prompted the guardsmen, under orders from their officers, to charge forward. Soldiers fell in the melee, and then a gunshot rang out. In the July 8, 1903 edition of the Evansville Courier, the local paper ran an article on the controversy over who fired the first shots. The newspaper interviewed two local witnesses. L.V. Van Lanningham lived next to the courthouse and said, I was not at all excited and I looked for the attack. I saw the crowd pressing the soldiers back to the gate of the jail. Then I saw the flash of a pistol from the middle of the street opposite the window from which I was looking. 
They also talked to Dr. Gilbert, the physician with Captain Bloom. The newspaper assured its readers that he was a man not at all excitable and trained to observe facts. The first shot came from the alcove. There were two men or more sheltered by the jail yard wall, which extends beyond court place, the doctor said. I saw the man fire the first shot. Other witnesses swore to the paper that there had been no initial shots from the mob. The newspaper also ran some speculation that an unnamed private confessed to National Guard brass that the soldiers had fired first, fearing for their lives. Regardless of who shot first, that first blast inspired a flurry of 300 further shots from the National Guard. Bullets rained down from the jailhouse windows, the courthouse, and the soldiers in the street. When it was all over, Colonel McCoy and Sheriff Kratz stood on the jail steps, looking out at the bloody results of the riot. Rioters and a few spectators lay dead and dying. Captain Bloom ordered his men, Keep that mob back. Call on them to halt. If they do not halt, shoot them down. We can't take any more chances. Men, be careful. But for God's sake, keep a close watch. But a counterattack never came. The mob was finished. And 12 people were now dead, including a 15-year-old girl named Hazel Allman, who'd come to observe the riot with her parents. Now, I was surprised to find out that the list of the dead consisted entirely of white residents, mob participants, or onlookers. I even asked Kelly if this was a mistake, and if the newspapers had perhaps just buried the names of the black dead. Not, not that I know of. I, I, think they, I think they were too busy running away. Remember, the mob, the, the mob was all white. Um, uh, the people at the jail were all white. The mob was all white. The soldiers were all white. They, everybody, they were all white. Um, to my knowledge, no African-Americans died in, in the incident. The aftershocks of the Evansville riot continued to be felt over the years. But one person who did not necessarily see those ripples spread out was Lee Brown himself. He'd been badly wounded, and that rapid flight from the jail had taken its toll on his body. On July 9, 1903, the Evansville Courier reported that Governor Durbin ordered that Brown not be returned to the city for trial immediately, and that physicians were concerned about his chances for survival. He was dead before July was over. Here's Kelly. Um, and his wife, uh, the, the killer, the guy that killed the policeman, his wife lost her mind, apparently, and um, sat down on railroad tracks and let a train let a train run over her. Uh, I mean, she was apparently had lost her, lost her mind. She'd gone insane after that because her husband had done what he did. Um, so it, it was a real tragic story all the way around. I mean, from the guys to the sheriff, to the police officer, to the people that died from the militia. There was unfortunately some major political fallout over the riot. For one thing, Evansville's white citizens did not forgive the National Guard for intervening on behalf of the local African-American community. The feeling against the members of the local company is intense, Captain Bloom wrote, noting several guardsmen were fired from their jobs at brewing companies, druggists, and grocers. It didn't seem to hurt the local leaders, though. Mayor Charles Covert served until 1906. Sheriff Kratz served out his term as well, although he was later accused in the local press of accepting bribes. A few months after the riot, 
Chief Hyuki was shot by one of his own detectives. But he survived. He later ran into some legal troubles and lots of drama in the police department and finally became sheriff of the county in the 1920s. But those were all powerful men protected by their positions. The aftermath of the riot was certainly much worse for any black people who remained in the city. The, the black population in 1900 was about 7,500. After 1903, when the 1910 census happened, it had dropped to about 6,200. People left and just didn't come back after that race riot. It was another census period before the black population started to grow again. People came back from Henderson that had fled, but there were a, probably a, a, a good percentage of the black population here left. They left as fast as they could. They packed up everything they had and went to wherever they had relatives. Some of them went back south, uh, which was probably not good for them. They were just scared to death to be here because of what had happened. In fact, in some ways, the riot gave the Ku Klux Klan a foothold in Indiana. Here's Kelly. They took control of the Republican Party in Evansville, uh, in Indiana. And uh, yeah, it was most un. It was most unfortunate that that occurred, but it was because of the makeup of Evansville and its past. In the 1903, when uh, Hiram Evans was looking for a place to start a clan outside of the Mason-Dixon line, he came to Evansville, and the 1903 race riot was one of the reasons that he came here. Uh, because it was so awful. It was unusual for a northern city to, at, at that moment anyway, to have that sort of event. You know, you, you, you read about them being in, you know, in the deep south, but you didn't read about those things in the north. The north was supposed to be more civilized, but there it was. According to Kelly, the culture of extreme segregation and discrimination did not dissipate in Evansville, until the latter half of the 20th century. The city had a KKK-backed mayor and a KKK-infiltrated Republican Party. In World War II, white factory employees disrupted the war effort because they would strike to avoid working alongside black workers on the line. In the 60s, that became less acceptable, although Kelly said that true equity still has a long way to go. You know, part of my job is to data collect data for all of our HUD programs. And, you know, you can go on the city website and see a minority conditions report that we did in 2017. I'm getting ready to update it. But it shows that about 60% of the black population lives in a small collection of about five census tracts in the city just east of downtown. The spread of African-American population really hasn't even happened in Evansville over the decades. Most black people still live in one congregated area. You know, black income is 60% of white income in Evansville. Even though there is a thriving black middle class, household income for black people is still 60% of white income. So we've got a long way to go, I think. The 1903 incident was really a a watermark for Evansville. You would have thought that after that, race relations here would have You know, we would have changed how we looked at ourselves, but we didn't. But other effects of the riot were more immediate and also deeply tragic. You see, 
The Evansville riot led to the displacement of a black man named J.D. Mayfield, or possibly John D. Metcalf, or Bud Fruit. He's listed as several different names in the original sources. Like so many of his friends and neighbors, he managed to flee Indiana, finding himself resettled in Danville, Illinois. But somehow, on July 25th, 1903, a white mob still found him there. He'd hopped on a freight train. He had relatives in Illinois. And about two weeks later in Danville, Illinois, there was another race riot. There was a, a mob was trying to break into the jail. They were running through the streets of downtown Danville. And this guy had left Evansville. Two weeks later, he's in a, a black tavern in Danville. He comes out to see what the commotion is going on. And there's a white mob coming down the street and they attack him and he has a gun with him and he shot the one of the guys that had grabbed him on the street and when that happened they killed him the mob lynched him on a lamppost and then um, as they were trying to invade the jail they cut this guy down i mean these were brutal brutal people they they cut this guy down from where they hung him and took his body and burned his body on the courthouse lawn the newspaper accounts of the lynching of Mayfield are horrific. They cut his ears off, cut off pieces of his body, and sold them as souvenir. I mean, it, it was medieval. These people were just medieval. After what he just fled from, what must Mayfield have thought, stepping outside to see those angry white faces rushing toward him? It's horrifying to consider. Thanks very much to Kelly Coors for talking with us. We relied on Kelly's article for Evansville Living, as well as Brian Butler's dissertation, An Undergrowth of Folly, Public Order, Race Anxiety, and the 1903 Evansville, Indiana Riot. Along with, We Don't Intend to Fall in Anymore at the End of the Parade from the Indiana Historian, the report of the Adjutant General of Indiana for 1903 to 1904, the Evansville Police Department's fact sheet, History of the Evansville Police Department, Race, Poverty, and Domestic Policy, a 2008 book from editor C. Michael Henry, Reporting from the Indianapolis Journal, The San Francisco Call, The Los Angeles Herald, and The Evansville Courier, along with an article from The Courier Press. We'll link to our sources. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. 
and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.